Good morning, PBC. It is so great to be back with you all. You know, I just, uh, Kyle has introduced me a couple of times, but I feel like this is my church away from home because we've been a part of this thing with Tim and with you guys as far as the leadership pretty much from the beginning. And I really feel a close connection with you all because we've shared some foxholes together and we've celebrated, we've high-fived some things together too. And it is so good to be able to regather and to be back with you, whether you're in the room or whether you're online. I want to say good morning. It is so good to be back with you all. Now, I, by the way, I was the last time I was here, this place was sort of torn up. You know, there's a little bit of a remodeling project going on, and I understand a lot of you all who are part of that. You've done a great, I really like what you've done with the place. It's looking good, and uh, it's just so good to be able to be here and use it. So anyway, I want to ask you a question this morning, and I hope the answer is yes. Have you ever had someone that's a benefactor in your life? I mean, maybe a mentor or someone who has seen potential in you, has affirmed that, and who's used their resources to help you, to guide you, to provide for you? You know, that could have been a parent. I hope that you've had a parent or a couple of parents that have really invested in your life that way. It could be a teacher, uh, might be a coach. I've had some coaches that really saw potential and invested in me, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, it could be a, a spiritual mentor or pastor or spiritual leader, someone who's really said, hey, I see this in you, and I want to invest in you. It could be in business. You could have someone that's a little further down the road as an employer or maybe even a coworker, but is a different place in a company that said, look, I think you've got incredible potential and I want to invest in you. And you know, the Bible would refer to those with a, a figure of speech that you've been working through in Psalm 23, it would refer to them as shepherds. These are people who care and who provide and, and who protect. And, and we need human shepherds in our lives. All of us do. I mean, I've got mentors I still turn to, even at this advanced age that I am compared to you guys. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. We need that. But Psalm 23 is not just about shepherds in our lives that are human. It is about there is a greater shepherd. And that greater shepherd is the Lord God. Matter of fact, one of the terms that Tim has used a lot with you all is in Psalm 23 is that God is a good, sovereign shepherd. He is compassionate, but he's also powerful. He is sourced in goodness. And so what we see here is that God, are, we're, we're going to see today in verse 5, is that as you look at this series going through Psalm 23, is that God is a great provider. He is a great protector. He is one who has, we said in the song, prepared a table before us. He's prepared a banquet, even in the presence of our enemies. He has lavishly blessed us in amazing ways because he loves us. And that's what we look here. The, the phrase I would look at if you want to read along in Psalm 23 is this. And we're just going to look at the first verse. It comes in a context of much more. But in verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil so that my cup overflows. Now there's much more in the psalm, but you're going to pick up that emphasis next week. Here we see that God, and I would say Christ, because this, this verse or this chapter in Psalm, Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm, can be laid right up against some other portions of Scripture, especially in the Newer Testament. You look at John chapter 10 when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And this is saying Yahweh, the Lord God, God Almighty is the good shepherd 
So when Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, he was claiming to be God. Make no mistake about it. It's not like people said this about him. From his own mouth, Jesus is saying, in one of seven times in the Gospel of John, he says, I am, and then fill in the blank, the good shepherd. As contrasted with the poor shepherds, the bad shepherds of Israel that Ezekiel talks about in chapter 34. He said, in contrast to those religious leaders that came before me that just wanted to use you and abuse you, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. And the good shepherd is one who leads his flock and they they hear my voice and they know me. It's a relational connectivity. Well, I think in Psalm 23, when we're talking about the Lord is my shepherd, we could also say, yes, the Lord God, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, he is my shepherd. But we could equally say, Jesus Christ is my shepherd, for he is God. And that's the picture you look. If you want a parallel in this, maybe you've already talked about it, go to John 10. Check out what Jesus says about himself and about his ministry in John 10, and you're going to see some amazing things. One of the things that we see in this is God is our gracious and lavishly generous host. When you get to verse 5, a lot of commentators look at this, and they basically say that the, the metaphor or the motif shifts from a shepherd to a gracious host because as you've prepared a table before me, you've prepared a banquet. It's possible that it's still staying with the shepherd motif or metaphor, and he's simply talking about what you do in the fields. You make me lie down in green pastures, but you also prepare a table before me. Or it could be that they shift, that David shifts here, and he shifts to the idea of, yes, you are a great shepherd, but you're also a generous and lavishly generous host who's prepared a table before me. But in this passage, either one of those is, it doesn't change the meaning of. The meaning basically is that God provides. He is our gracious and, and lavishly generous host. He provides what we truly need, and he provides it when we need it. That's this table that's set before me that he's talking about. Let's focus on that a second. We'll get to in the presence of my enemies in a minute. In this passage, when he talks about this, he's saying, I'm going to provide. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the Lord who provides. Just like he said in a, in a sense to Abraham, you know, when he provided the sacrifice is recorded in Genesis 22. And that's where the name Jehovah Jireh, we first see it in the scriptures, which means the Lord provides. The same thing is true here. But he provides according to what he, as a good shepherd, knows that we need. And he provides when we need it, not according to what our demands or desires are. We have to trust he is our provider. I got to tell you, you know, going through seminary, and I met some people that are, that are either headed to seminary or in it right now at GCU and some other places. That's awesome. I want to tell you, going through seminary as a married student was some of the leanest times financially and materially. I didn't know we were going to make it. There are times literally when my wife and I would go through a parking lot because we were going to have a date night and we didn't have enough money to buy a pizza. And so we're looking for spare change in the parking lot, hopefully to get enough money to be able to do that. There are times when we didn't know if we were going to make our expenses. And God always provided for us, sometimes ahead of time, sometimes right as the need came up, and with a babysitting job where we as seminary students would move into a home and take care of kids and, while the parents were gone. And so it was great to have that opportunity. 
And so God has provided. I thought, well, okay, well, we get into ministry, and then that will be, we won't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Wrong. You know, as a pastor over 40-some years, I've been through places to where I've gone through budget cuts, which means salary cuts. I've been through a time when I moved from an associate pastor role into the senior pastor role, but it was a smaller church, and I took a 40% cut in pay in order to do it. And I had people tell me, Rick, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's just not the right thing. And I said, what if God wants me to do this? I'm going to trust that he will provide. And you know what he did? And he has. Not always the timing, I thought. I've heard people say, God is seldom early, but he's never late. What a great statement. He provided when we needed, and he provided what we needed. My wife's involved in real estate, something that she loves doing, but oftentimes at the end of the year, we'll come up in like the Christmas time, December, and she said, oh my gracious, I got no business for the first of the year. I can't tell you how many times we've had that conversation, or with COVID, or with other stuff, and yet it's amazing how God has provided exactly what we needed. Not all of what we wanted, but what we needed when we needed it. I bet you can experience some of the same thing. It's a variety of ways that he does that. But this is the picture. Now, we want to respond to this, and I want to say to you, don't respond like the Israelites did when God brought them out of the nation of Egypt, and he's carrying them through, leading them. Psalm 78 says, he led them like a shepherd leads his flock. And I'd encourage you later this afternoon or something, go to Psalm 78 and see all the things that God did for them. He provided for them guidance. He delivered them out of Egypt and out of bondage, and he's taken them through, and he gives them guidance with a a pillar of cloud during the day and and a, a pillar of fire at night so that they can travel. Their shoes don't wear out. Their clothes don't wear out. Uh, they, they provide for, when they're thirsty, he provides for them water. Even in miraculous ways, he provides meat for them when they're tired of meat. He provides manna from heaven. All of these things God did for them to provide for them. And yet they grumbled, they complained. They murmured. That, that word murmur, think about that. Murmur is sort of what they were doing. And the crowd used this murmur, 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 You know, that grumbling, that complaining, that belly aching, that questioning. So in Psalm 78, it says this in verses 18 through 19. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table for us in the wilderness? You check that analogy? Can God spread a table for us in the wilderness? Can God even do that? Is he going to provide for our needs? What does David say in Psalm 23? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yes, God can, and yes, God does provide. But they tested him. They annoyed him because they were questioning his ability or his willingness to provide. And we see that this disappointed God, the fact that he had done all these things for them, and yet he did not give up on them, but they did have some consequences as he disciplined them, even as going through the desert. You know, it's sort of like uh, years ago, you haven't seen this because most of you are way too young, but there was a film many years ago called Shenandoah, and in it, one of the key actors is Jimmy Stewart. Now, many of you don't know who Jimmy Stewart is. 
but he's a lead actor, and there's this pioneer family that's settling the land. And there's a scene in the movie Shenandoah when Jimmy Stewart sits down, and he's at the head of the table, and he's leading his family all around this table in a prayer of thanksgiving. Listen to his prayer of thanksgiving. Okay, here's his prayer. Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, we sowed it, and we harvested it. We cooked the harvest, and it wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, and, and, but we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. Now, I wonder how many times we sort of have that same attitude. God, why should I thank you for this? I worked my tail off for this. I've worked my knuckles to the bone to make this. I'm the one that got out there and made that sale. I'm the one that got out there and did this, created this product. I'm the one that did that. But, but we'll thank you anyway. Almost as if we, in a perfunctory fashion, have to do this or else God's going to curse us somehow. Do you think those types of prayers are really prayers of thanksgiving or are they more just a religious act? I would say it's probably the latter. So I think that it's a type of thing to where we need to be careful not to respond in that fashion. I would encourage you to respond this way. Like the Apostle Paul who tasted of the Lord's goodness and who gave thanks. When Paul wrote the words I'm going to mention to you, he was in prison. He didn't know where his literally his next meal was coming from. He didn't know if he would have a next meal because in a Roman prison, you only ate if people brought it to you. They didn't have like a correctional system where you had rights as a prisoner. And Paul says these words in Philippians chapter 4, 13. I can do Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, usually, where is it that we see those words? We see them on athletic gear. We see them on shoes. We see them on a headband. We see them on a wristband. We see them painted on people's eyes, Philippians 4, 13. Like, I can do all things. I can be victorious in this athletic competition. It has nothing to do with that. The context that Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is finances. He says, I have learned to be content with a little, and I have learned to be content with a lot. In either case, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see the picture that's there? Why could Paul say that? He didn't even know if he would live. He, because in first chapter of Philippians, verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and even if I die, that's gain. God is worthy to be worshipped. God is worthy to be honored. God is worthy to be praised as our provider, whether he provides how we think he should and when we think he should. The question is, will we trust him to provide and watch how he responds? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how we should be responding. The second piece in this is, you prepared a table before me You've anointed my head with oil so that my cup overflows. In other words, it's a, it's a picture of graciousness 
and he's doing this. This would often happen at a banquet where a guest of honor would have uh, some oil or ointment that's poured over their head. And it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor. It's an extravagant act on the part of the host. And the picture that's here is just that. But he says, you have done this in the presence of my enemies. And I'm afraid sometimes we just sort of leapfrog over that real fast. What does that really mean? Well, I'm going to say this, that God is, or Christ is our powerful and protective host. He's providing this banquet for us in the very presence of our enemies, in their face. He's saying, you may reject this man, you may reject this woman, but I am embracing him. I am embracing her. She is of me. She is of mine. And I'm going to bless. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to honor her even in your presence. Now, who is it that wrote Psalm 23? David is what we're told. David had a lot of enemies in his life. I don't know if you know that or not, but, but he had many, many different enemies. For instance, he was often in danger from the Philistines, some of the Canaanites that, with whom they were at war. But he was also in danger oftentimes from Saul, the king. Even though David always worked for Saul's best interest, as, his son, as Saul's son, Jonathan said to him, why do you want to kill him? He's only done what's good for you. And Saul didn't have an answer. Saul saw David as a threat. He saw him as his competition. Saul became David's enemy. Several times he threw a spear at him, trying to pin him to the wall. Several times he sent hit squads out to to find David and to kill him. David had to run for his life. He hid in the hills. He hid in caves. He led a bunch of people that were misfits and that were also running for their lives. David knew what it was to have enemies. Sometimes from foreign forces and sometimes even from the king that he sought to serve. David even knew what it was to run for his life from his own son, Absalom, and probably Psalm 23 was written in response to David's situation with Absalom, his son, who was trying to take the kingdom from him and who was trying to kill him to get it. David knew what it was to have enemies. David was even not the enemy, so to speak, but David was disrespected in his own family. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons. So when the rest of them were out to war, David was home taking care of the sheep. When Samuel, when, when they find, need to find, David goes out to find about the sons and to bring it back. This way before the days of the internet, way before the days of immediate knowledge, you had to send messengers. So Jesse sent David to find out how his brothers were doing and take them some supplies. When he gets there, he finds Goliath is challenging the armies of God. And you know the story probably about David and Goliath, how David operates in faith and and God uses him to take out Goliath. David still didn't have the full respect in his own family. When it came time for a new king to be anointed, the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's household because the Lord had had told him, I want you to go and I want you to anoint the next king and that king is going to come out of the household of Jesse. So Samuel comes and it's a big day and all day long they come and, and, and he says, it's not this son, it's not this son, it's not this son, it's not this son. Samuel goes through the whole list and he says, don't you have any more sons? 
The answer was, well, yeah, there's one. Almost as an afterthought, he's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you were Jesse, if these were your sons, your children, your family, and, and I know Billy Graham is with the Lord now, but let's say Billy Graham is coming to town. He's going to come to your house for dinner. Wouldn't you want all of your family there? Of course you would. Because he's a man of God. He's a dignitary. I want him. David's not even in the scene. Why is that? Well, the scriptures don't tell us that. But when we were in Israel last year, one of my former teachers, Dr. Ron Allen, who's at Dallas Seminary, he opposed this thought. And not only have some rabbinical or Jewish scholars been saying this for years, but now some evangelical scholars are beginning to wonder. David was definitely Jesse's son, but David's mother is never mentioned in biblical record. And they're posing the question, and again, in the Talmud, some of the Jewish teachings, they've been teaching for years that David was born to a different mother than all of the rest of the sons. And somehow there was some shame, some question, some disgrace. Now, I don't know about that. And again, it's not the Bible, and I don't want to build a church on this, so to speak. But is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that when David said in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me, that he wasn't just talking about original sin, like all of us are sinners from birth. It is possible he literally meant what he was saying. In sin my mother conceived me. And he was seen, excuse me, as the bastard son of Jesse. If that's true, and I don't know that it is, but if that's true, do you see why he might have been disregarded and disrespected in his own family? Do you think David, it was a great comfort to him to say, look, you've provided a table before me even in the presence of my enemies and those that disrespect and disregard me, you embrace me. Oh, God, thank you, because I'm not getting it here. I'm getting everything but that here. And I'll bet you there's some people in the room today who can identify with David, both on the disrespect, the disregard, and even those people that are at war, an enemy with you. And let me be very clear. There are enemies out there. The Bible is very clear. There are evil people in the world. It's not just good people that are disadvantaged. There are evil people. The book of Proverbs says this. There's basically four different types of people. There's the wise man or the wise woman who learns and responds and lives skillfully. There's the naive person, the young person that's just untaught. All they need is to be taught like a child needs to be taught. There's nothing negative about that unless they stay perpetually there. But there's also people that are fools. In other words, they have information, but they don't respond to it. But in Proverbs, it says there's also Solomon saying, my son, be aware of the evil woman and the evil man. These are not just fools. They're people that want to take you down with them. You need to be warned. There are people like that in the world and aware these are not just people that are different than you are. They're not just people with whom you disagree, which is really important to understand in the political and contentious political cycle that we're in right now. It's not just because someone is of a different party or a different persuasion that they are evil. That's not it. What we're talking about here is people who are against God 
and against anyone who stands with God and for God that are against you because of your identification with Christ. One of the things that we see in this passage and we see in other places in the Scripture, Paul told Timothy that you need to be aware that all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You take a stand for Christ, you're going to suffer persecution. Count it in. Jesus did. Who do we think we are that we're going to get a pass? Secondly, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised when you encounter suffering. For the prophets did before you. Jesus said that. Peter said that. But he also says this, but don't suffer as a lawbreaker. Don't suffer because of your breaking of the truth. Don't suffer because of, and I would add, your stupidity or the way. It's one thing to be rejected for sharing the gospel. It's another thing for being insensitive and harsh and critical and an idiot with how you do it. That's not an enemy. Look in the mirror. You're your own worst enemy if that's the case. Take a stand for Christ. There's enough trouble with that. Don't make it harder. Be gracious, be loving, be like Jesus. Understand that even within the standpoint of the enemies, you know, we are being told that we are to do differently. We are to love our enemies, not hate them. We are to do good toward our enemies. We may have enemies, and in cases, I said they're benefactors, sometimes they're parents or teachers or pastors or coaches or people at work. You know what? Some of the thing that makes it so hard is some of the enemies are in those same categories. You could have been abused by a parent or someone I trusted or a teacher or a pastor or someone at work. They may be out to take you down. In that case, they're your enemies. If that's the case, understand this. You and I need to understand that there is one, even though we've been rejected in so many ways, has embraced it, said, he is mine, she is mine, and I've invited them to the party, and here it is. Will we trust him? When we do, we can respond in a different way. When we understand that Christ has called us to an abundant life and that that abundant life is found in him, that gives us the power to walk in freedom from past abuses, not as a victim any longer, but victoriously. And it gives us the power to forgive. I want to tell you, you know, we look at this and we wonder how does this work in, in life Romans 12 says this, verses 17 through 21, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If it's possible, as far as it work depends upon you, then live peaceably with all people. My beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I don't have time to develop that passage. But listen to what it says. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the takeaway. That's the takeaway. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome the evil with good. When Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, they had wanted to kill him. That was an act of mercy. And when he got thrown into prison, when he got to Egypt, in Genesis 50, it's recorded how Joseph's brothers come to him once their father has died and said, look, he's just kept us around. He'll seek his revenge now that our father's dead. There's nothing to hold him back. And Joseph says this to them in Genesis 50. 
He says, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. His focus was on the good shepherd. His focus was on the God who provided and prepared a table before him in the presence of his enemies. And because of that, he was able to forgive and to treat his brothers in a loving fashion, not returning evil for evil. You know, this is a, there's a lot of examples of this, and I would say that one man that, that I have appreciated from history, his name is William Wilberforce. He grew up in the 1800s in Great Britain at a time when the British Empire was importing people from Africa and other places as slaves, and he saw that as a despicable trade. He grew up a frail and sickly child, and yet somehow he made his way into Parliament. And five years after he gets into Parliament, he comes face to face with the risen Christ, and he gives his life to Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his life, for 40 years, he worked for the abolition of slavery throughout the, the, the British Empire. There were death threats on his life. People ridiculed him, criticized him, undermined him, lied about him. He had a long list of enemies because he was standing for what God had called him to do and be. And yet it did not deter him. For 40 years he serves in Parliament and he has to resign because of his bad health and still there is no bill that has been passed for the abolition of slavery. And you could wonder, is that ever going to happen? Then three days before his death, he received word that the bill was in Parliament and it was destined to pass. And it did, due to his tireless work and God's work through him. Here's a man who could not have done what he did, he did not known. You, O oh Lord, though everybody else has rejected me, you have invited me to the party, you spread out a table. I'm experiencing an abundance of life sourced in Jesus Christ. And I will stay the course regardless of the outcome. God bless individuals like William Wilberforce. May their tribe increase. And I wonder if there's some people just like that in this room today. I want to tell you, trust that the Lord God loves you and he will provide for you amazingly and abundantly. And even if everyone else has rejected you, he has invited you to the party. Don't focus on the rejection. Focus on the acceptance that you have in him. Don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you do have in him. And be thankful. Give him thanks and stay focused in that regard. Would you pray with me? Father God, I want to thank you for the men and women that are in this room today. And I want to thank you for the truth of your word I want to thank you that, that you, even as we gather together here today and we have that privilege, want to reassure us that you love us, that you care for us. You want us to know you as a flock that knows our shepherd and that knows that, that the Lord Jesus has laid down his life for us. Father, if we have Jesus, if we have the forgiveness of our sins, if we have a confidence in the future, if we have a good and sovereign shepherd, who is overseeing us, what more could we ask for? Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing and for the privilege of calling you Father. I just pray that you will use these truths today to encourage where there needs to be encouragement, perhaps convict where there needs to be conviction, but that our response will be both honoring to you and healthy for us and those around us.
for we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.